Well, about 1,100 years before Jesus was born, so that's back a little while ago, about 1,100 years before Jesus was born in the, the dusty uh, regions of, of the Middle East, there was a lady who was barren. She was unable to have children. And she had a visitation from the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord said, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. Okay? And he said, when, when you have this son, it, it's important that you do not drink any fermented drink, no alcoholic beverages, and that you don't eat any unclean food. For that son that's going to be born is going to be a Nazarite in the womb. In the womb. Now, don't, don't confuse, seriously, Nazarite with Nazarene. We call Jesus the Nazarene. He's from Nazareth, the town. But a Nazarite vow is a, a religious consecration, a vow that you can make to the Lord in the Old Testament. And it had primarily three things. You couldn't drink alcoholic beverages. You couldn't touch anything dead. And uh, you couldn't cut your hair. And so he said, this son that's going to be born in you is a Nazarite from birth. And we, we call him Samson. You've probably heard of Samson. But seriously, honestly, if this is your first time you've ever been in church and you've never heard of a, a preacher before, you've probably heard of Samson. And the life of Samson is a wonderful lesson for us. Remember this, the, the Old Testament really are the Hebrew scriptures, but I don't want us to forget that it is our backstory. We're not Hebrews. We're not Jews by, by human descent. But we've been grafted in, and that's our backstory. So the Old Testament is full of all kinds of incredible things. And the New Testament, the Christ, Christian scriptures tell us that those stories, those real-life true events and people and things that happen, that they're examples for us. So we're supposed to learn from them and grow from them and glean from them. And so as we take a peek into Samson's life today, we're going to learn and grow from him. But sadly, he is a wonderful illustration of how not to live. You know, Grandma told you, you know, everybody's got a lesson to teach you, either a good one or a bad one. Everybody's an example, a good one or a bad one, and it's true. And Samson, we'll, we'll learn a lot about what not to do. But also, we see something cool about God. And in all, God, in all of Samson's carnality and fleshliness and sinfulness and everything, God weaves throughout his life this redemption message. He weaves throughout his life this calling of God that he keeps bringing back to the surface all the time in Samson's life. God's masterful at taking that which is broken, that which the devil meant for evil, and working it out for good. He's masterful at taking that which is broken and making it beautiful. We serve such an awesome God. He's incredible. So he has this call of God on his life. But you, you look at the story, and, and it starts out by saying, Mama, you can't drink any fermented drink, and you can't eat any unclean food. You say, well, what's up with that? She's not the Nazarite. Samson's the Nazarite. Because we've learned from dietary science that what the mother consumes, the infant digests. And this is a good lesson for mamas and daddies. You don't get out of the loop either. Uh, that there's more that we consume in our households than just food. So we should ask ourselves the question, do we want our children to succeed? Do we want them to live a blessed life? Do we want them to be everything God has called them to be? Do we want to give them a heads up in life and, and push them towards all God's goodness? Yeah, we do. 
Now, you and I have probably all seen this. Kids who were raised in a wonderful environment, loving Jesus. I mean, a real deal environment who, who kind of wandered away. And then you've seen kids who are raised in, in literal hell in their home who go after God with all their hearts. And you kind of scratch your head. But, but listen, you, you bring up a child the way that he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. So hang in there. Hang in there. The story's not done yet. But we, we see that, that God's able to work. He's able to work. Regardless of what you're seeing right now, God's able to work. And so I want to challenge us parents. What are we consuming at home that our children are digesting? What, what's on your TV set? What's on your, your playlist? What is, what's in your attitudes? What's in your words? What's in your behavior? What comes out of your mouth? Because they're consuming, we're consuming more than just food, and the children are digesting more than just food. And so I encourage us today, let's make sure to give our children a heads up in life that we're living well, we're living godly, that we're, we're making sure, at least we're doing our part to make sure that what our children see us consume, which is what they're going to digest, what's going to get in their being is at least good, godly, wonderful things. Now, I'm not joking about this. This is not popular. First of all, I do want to say this. Spirituality is very popular in the world today. Very popular in the world today. So, but what I'm going to talk about is the negative side of spirituality. That's not popular today. See, we know from a Christian worldview, from the scriptures, that there is both the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And I want you to know, don't be deceived. Your adversary, the devil has assigned some demons to mess up your life and to get you stuck and to hinder you. Now, one of the things the devil likes to do is he likes you to get a vision of demons as a horror movie, so you get scared of the devil. Well, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying Satan's strategic, and we need to make sure we're strategic as well. And so there's this passion in the devil for you to not be what God has called you to be. And the Bible is our textbook for spiritual success. And we don't have a slide for it, but in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, your adversary, the devil. You have an adversary. Your adversary, the devil. He roams, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. He's looking for somebody to devour. Now, when I read that, it makes me believe that not everybody is edible. Otherwise, he'd just jump right in and you know, just had plenty of people on his plate, but he's looking around for somebody who's devourable. And I want to encourage you to not be devourable. I want to encourage you to put on the whole armor of God, which is found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, the whole armor of God, so that should the devil decide to clamp down on you, he'll break his teeth on the armor of God that you've clad yourself with, and he'll find out, wow, that was not devourable. They aren't devourable. Paul said, I am not ignorant of Satan's devices in 2 Corinthians 2.11. I'm not ignorant of Satan's devices. I'm not unaware of his schemes. He said, but if I was, he would outwit me. He would outsmart me. He would take advantage of me. We don't want to be ignorant either. The reason he couldn't take advantage of, of Paul, the guy who wrote such a big chunk of the New Testament, is because he was not unaware of Satan's devices and schemes and tricks and plans and, and strategies. And we need to be the same way. And we're going to look at a guy named Samson who was unaware. 
and we're going to do our best to be aware. So today I want to talk about waking up before it's too late. Wake up before it's too late. When you see the graphic on the screen, you see, this is Delilah and Samson, a, a picture of it. I like that era of paintings better because full-bodied people were beautiful. And so I like that. Now the thing is, you got to be skinny, bone skinny. But you'll notice, look at old, old paintings and drawings, even old movies, and you'll see how the body type has changed in, in the world and what we consider beautiful. Wake up before it's too late. In the book of Revelation, John, the beloved disciple, is told on more than one occasion by Jesus, come up here, come up higher, come up here. God's calling all of us to a higher level. Not down low, he's calling us to a, a higher level. A new level, a new dimension, a new power, a new purity, a new blessing, a new area in our life. So I want to pass along the words of Jesus. Let's come up higher. Let's go up higher with our lives. And friends, here's a little line that could change your life. I'm very serious about this. could change your life. There's a high cost to living low. There is a high cost to living low. And not in anyone do I know in the Bible, no one at least surpasses Samson. They may match him, but surpasses Samson in living the low life. Samson's low lay of living costs him dearly. His ignorance of Satan's schemes costs him deeply, and his infatuation with sin, with flesh, with everything else costs him greatly. If you read the story, it's interesting. He, he falls in love with the Philistine, and uh, his parents aren't too happy about that, but he wants to marry this Philistine. By the way, it's not Delilah. We never learn her name. You can read the story. He falls in love. He, he's having a, a wedding feast. They're seven days long. I mean, last time you were wedding, you thought it went a little lengthy. These are seven days long, okay? Seven days. And so Samson gives a riddle to some of the people at the, the party and says, and they make a wager and a bet, and if you can solve this riddle, I'll do this. If you can't, you have to do that. And they have all week long to solve it, but they can't solve it. So they go to Samson's wife and say, you need to find the answer to this riddle, or we will kill you and your father. Well, that puts a little stress on you. And so for seven days, in what's supposed to be super celebratory, Samson's wife is crying, begging for the answer to the riddle. Well, finally he tells her. And then the people he made the wager with comes in and answers the riddle. Samson loses the bet. And he says something, and my how times have changed. He says to these people, you would not have known the answer to that riddle had you not plowed with my heifer. Men, do not call your wife a heifer, okay? I, I thought that was interesting. I thought, wow, things change over the years. Be careful. You read in the Song of Songs of Samson talking about the beloved, and sometimes you think, and that was a compliment? You have a neck like a giraffe. Really? And so that's supposed to be beautiful? So, so be careful as you translate from 
that culture to this culture. So he marries this Philistine lady. Uh, he's ticked off because of all this. And so he ditches his wife after the wedding with her dad and goes home to be with his parents. And sometime later, and I don't think the Bible tells us whether that's two weeks, two months, or two decades, whatever it is, he comes back to get his wife. And the dad says, we, we thought you ditched her. I gave her to somebody else. Your wife is now remarried to somebody else. Well, that makes Samson mad. He's not real good at controlling his anger. And he goes and he builds, burns the fields and vineyards and crops of the Philistines. And they say, who did this? And they said, uh, Samson, who's the son-in-law of those folks over there. And so they go over and literally burn to death his wife and her father. Kills him. Wow. I'm amazed because we do say we've never lived in a meaner world. And I always say, read your Old Testament. So, things aren't going very good in Samson's life, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because there's a high cost to living low. There's a high cost to living low. And so we look at Samson's life, and then he, he gets with a prostitute, and then he falls in love or in lust, I'm not sure which, with Delilah, who again is not his wife. His wife's been burned to death. And Samson isn't married to Delilah. He's, I don't know what we call it, shacking up with her or whatever term you want to use. And these Philistines hate Samson. One of the reasons they hate him is because he single-handedly killed 1,000 of them with the jawbone of a donkey. 1,000 of them. Sort of thing. we we got to know where this guy's strength comes from, which is another thing that you've probably heard people mention about Samson. Anytime you see a painting or a drawing of Samson, he looks usually like the Incredible Hulk, you know. And apparently that wasn't how he looked because if I saw somebody like the Incredible Hulk, I'd say, I know where their strength comes from. They're huge. These people are saying, where does this guy's strength come from? If you read the story, every time he does a mighty feat, it says this, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. So they really want to know the secret of his strength, or they don't think they're going to be able to beat him. And so in comes the bribe. 1,100 pieces of silver for Delilah, if she can discover and tell them how to drain Samson of his strength. And so I'm telling you, this story drives me crazy. This story you just want to scream when you read it. So Samson says, okay, here's the secret of my strength. If I were tied up with seven bowstrings, you know, the strings that go on a bow and arrow, seven bowstrings that had never been dried, then I would become as weak as other men. Now, the scripture doesn't say until the last one, but you can infer that she lulls him to sleep, ties him up with those bowstrings, or one of her servants does, and then she says, all shocked, oh my goodness, Samson, the Philistines have come upon you. And he snaps those bowstrings like they're nothing, like he's paper, and he escapes. Here's where the story really irks me. She says, Samson, you've made a fool of me. You didn't tell me the truth. And I want to say, I am so sorry that I did not tell you the truth so you could get me captured and killed by the enemy. 
how foolish of me. But anyway, please tell me. And so Samson says, well, if I were tied with new ropes that never been used before, I'd be as weak as any other man. So that happens, boom, he breaks those like it's, like it's sewing string, and he, you know, has victory over the Philistines. Oh, she's crying again. You made a fool of me again. He tells a third thing. I have seven locks of hair. If you'd take with seven locks of my hair and you'd weave it in a weaver's loom and you'd tighten it up with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. Phyllis, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. Like she's shocked by this. And he busts the loom, you know, escapes as always, and he's good to go. But then she's really sad because... She had three chances to get him captured, imprisoned, and possibly killed, and he lied to her during all three of them. How dare him not be more trustworthy? So let's pick up on the story in Judges 16, 15 through 17. Then she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me. And haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor's ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God for my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines and said, come back, come back once more. He's told me everything. And so the Philistines returned with the silver in their hand. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. My friends, there's a high cost to living low. There's a high cost to living low. Now, it's very important that you understand what I'm not saying as well as what I am saying. I am not saying, if you don't do everything right, God will hate you. God will reject you. God will send you to hell. I want you to be nervous from this day forward and in fear that you might mess up. We know this from the heart of God, that perfect love casts out fear. That fear has to do with torment. And that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So I don't want you to live in fear. But what I am saying is if you allow sin and Satan and this world to lull you to sleep, it will cost you. You will bring into your life unnecessary, did you hear that word? Unnecessary pain, 
unnecessary hurt, unnecessary trouble, unnecessary trials, unnecessary issues that you were never called to experience. This broken world has enough trouble and trial without having self-inflicted wounds. So I want these three verses to really sink into our hearts. In 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, it's often misquoted that money's the root of all evil, but it's actually the love of money, the lust of money, inordinate desire for money, an insatiable desire that I've got to have more, 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 more. The love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. But because we see the whole counsel of God, I believe God would give us the freedom to say this. And you can judge this however you want. That it's not just money, but people have an inordinate desire for all kinds of things this world has to offer. Maybe it's fame, maybe it's power, maybe it's partying, maybe it's whatever, whatever it is. But in this passage, it uses money. Some people eager for money, but I think some people eager for fame, eager for power, eager, eager for... The, the Bible actually describes a partying spirit, eager for partying. Some people, eager for other things than God, have wandered from the faith, and what's the next two words? Pierced themselves with what? Many griefs. They pierced themselves with many griefs. The second one is, in Proverbs 1315 says, good understanding gives favor, but the way of the transgressors is hard. Some translations say the treacherous, the unfaithful, the sinner. So when we say, well, you know, serving God seems hard. Not according to God. God says the way of the sinner, the transgressor, the treacherous, the unfaithful, their way is hard. And Jesus said, all of you who are beat up by life and think life's really hard, come to me. Come to me and you will find rest. Come to me for my yoke is easy, not hard. My burden is light, not hard. And you will find rest for your souls. Proverbs 19.3. Darlene showed me this one years ago. and I, thought, I can't believe that one escaped me. It's a wonderful one. People ruin their lives by their own what? Foolishness. Now, you may not be allowed to say this in your home. Uh, there are some homes that don't like this word, and I understand it. But I think it's the Message Bible says, people act stupid. People ruin their lives by their own foolishness and then are angry at God. Well, I thought God loved me. I thought God was good. I thought, I thought they get angry at God. So what are we to do? We need to wake up before it's too late. And you say, well, what does that even mean? Well, well Jesus told us this. These are his, his words. These, these are not the words of an uh, unbalanced or imbalanced prosperity preacher. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, hey, guys, I want you to know something. This world is running after all kinds of things. The pagans, the unbelievers, are trying to get everything the world has to offer them. They're striving, they're straining. It is their priority to grab everything this world has. But Jesus said, that should not be your priority. Here should be your priority. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, the beautiful thing about God is he doesn't say seek only. You know, we shouldn't read that and say, so I, I shouldn't seek a promotion at work? My car is breaking down. Should I not seek a, another car? No, seek ye first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. And this is what Jesus said. And you know all those things the pagans are running after? You know all the things the pagans are vying for and striving for and trying to get? He says, I'll give them to you as well. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. So as God chooses, he will put into our lives the things the world is running after. And everybody here is experiencing that to some degree. We're some of the most blessed people on planet Earth. You're walking in blessings from the hand of the Lord. So you say, well, how am I going to do this? Ephesians gives us an overview of how to do it. Ephesians 5. For you were once darkness, but now you're a light in the Lord. Live as children of light. This is why it said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, so many times we say, well, I just need you to spell it out to me. Tell me exactly what I have to do and shouldn't do and can't do and don't do. Well, all of us here are intelligent thinking people. And even if you're not a Christian here, I bet you have a pretty good understanding of how a Christian ought to live. How they ought. Now, it could be warped out a little or messed up a little, and you can grow and mature and that. But most of us know how the children of darkness live and how the children of light should live. And so you already know plenty of stuff to keep you busy, on your journey of growing in Christ, of being wise, not being unwise, making the most of your days, and understanding what the Lord's will is. You, you know in your heart of hearts good and right things to do and, and do them. I love this little line about Jesus. It says, and Jesus went about doing good. I mean, no one has to say, well, define that. We know what doing good is. You know, he went about doing good. We should go about doing good. We have to quit allowing the world to ease us and lull us to sleep. Causing us to just go through life in kind of a groggy manner. No, we're supposed to be on alert. We're supposed to be wide awake. Our minds, our being needs to be awake, ready, focused, alert. Be alert, the Bible says. Be alert. Very conscious of what the Lord's will is. How to live lives of a, as a follower of Jesus. To embrace and employ all the Christian habits that help us grow. And they help us grow into maturity. But I want to make this really plain because you and I have both done it the wrong way and we've done it the right way too. We think sometimes the more I can learn, the more mature I will be. Not, not necessarily. The more you can learn, the more educated you will be. Maturity comes from learning and doing. Learning and doing. We mature by learning truth. So it has to start there, so I'm not opposed to learning. We learn and do. We learn and put it into practice. We make the most of every day because the days are evil. We understand what the Lord's will is. We live as children of light. We're, we're doing. The Word of God is very action-oriented. It's very action-oriented. We don't just learn. We learn and do. But there really is a high cost of living low, but there's also a rich reward for the high life in Jesus. A rich reward in the high life in Jesus. The cool thing about Samson's story is it doesn't end 
where we left him off. Where we left off, he's in captivity. He's amusement for the pagans and the unbelievers. He's ridiculed. He's defeated. But the story takes a turn. It's interesting. The story takes a turn with a, a little three-letter word. We're, we're going to look at, at this story. We, again, left Samson captured, eyes gouged out. He's in the hands of the Philistines. He's in shackles. He's grinding grain in the prison mill like a farm animal. And he gets out on occasion to the temple of Dagon, an, an idol, just to make sport of him, just so they can say, look what our God has done. Our God has conquered the judge of Israel. Israel is defeated by Dagon. That's Judges 16.21. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. Yet there's this cool shift that happens. Let's, let's look at the next verse. But. That's a beautiful word. Nevertheless. Regardless. Nonetheless. However. This verse gets me excited. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it was shaved. <laughs> Dagon didn't see that coming. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it was shaved. See, God always has a but for your life and my life. The hair begins to grow. The Nazarite vow begins to kick back in. The anointing of God begins to get reactivated. The strong man is being renewed. His hair is beginning to grow again. I want to tell you this, friends. You may have had and maybe are now experiencing catastrophic failures caused by your own foolishness, your own carnal desires, your own sinful choices. You may feel like you've been captured by Satan, by sin, by the world. Your eyes are gouged out. You're carted off to a foreign prison. You're being used like a brute beast, and Satan is laughing at you. You're not even being treated like a human being. But Satan's strategies and plans cannot triumph over a, but God. The hair on your head's beginning to grow again. You don't have to be a second-class Christian. See, what, what Satan will whisper to you when we've gone through the throes of, of horrible defeat, especially if it was by our own poor choices, then he whispers, you know what, God doesn't want to have anything to do with you again. And then if we fight that off and we come back to him, then he whispers to us, hey, you know what? You can come back to God, but you got to stay in the outer courts. You can't come into the inner courts. you got to stay out there. In the out you, you will be a second-class Christian. You'll never be fully redeemed, bought back. You'll never be fully restored. But answer the devil with the story we call the prodigal son. As he comes back, and he's got the... He's got the script in his head. 
I know what I'm going to tell my father. I'm not worthy to be your son. Uh, just make me as one of your hired hands. Uh, forgive me. And when the, when the father sees him afar off, he runs, embraces him. The son begins his speech. And you know what happens? The father pays zero attention to it. Don't even let him finish it. And he says, quick, kill the fatted calf. Put a robe on his back. Sandals on his feet. A ring on his finger. The ring was the signet ring of the family. In other words, you have been restored to full authority in this family. You now have the authority to buy and sell and do whatever. My authority, the father's saying, is your authority. And he celebrates that my son who is dead is now alive again. He does not come back as a second-class Christian. He does not come back as a servant. He comes back with the full privileges of a son. A single word from God, but. Well, they grab Samson in the temple of Dagon, beautiful temple, seating thousands of people. And they say, bring Samson out for us that we might make sport of him. And so let him entertain us. And they are really, the whole purpose is they're parading him on the Colosseum floor, the temple floor, to show again Dagon is the true God, and here's the best the Israelites have. And so a little while later, Samson says to the servant that's leading him around, would you place my hands between the two pillars? <laughs> Whew. Would you place my hands on the two pillars of the temple that I might rest? And he places his hands there. And he says a prayer to God, God, show me your favor one more time. Give me your strength one more time. <laughs> and he begins to push. These are support pillars for the temple. And up above him is about 3,000 people seated. He pushes that, those pillars out. The temple falls and more people are killed in his death than in his life. Now, if you're like me, you may say, there's one part of the story I don't like. He gets crushed and killed too. Would you believe me if I tell you that's a good thing? Easy for you to say. You weren't Samson. But, but Samson... There's a natural physical event that's happening to give us a spiritual truth. Man, I need to do it. You need to do it. We all need to do it. I know we've done it a lot, but we, we still got some pillars to push on, don't we? Where we want to walk up and say, okay, whew, I must die. He must live. He must increase. I must decrease. There's still pillars of our flesh, of the culture, of the world that draws us and woos us. And the message of the believer, my friends, that we don't often say is a message of death first. The whole baptism ceremony is death, buried with him in baptism and raised to newness of life. Jesus says, if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, you will find it. Hmm. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. All day long, we're being led like lambs to the slaughter. That's a good thing. 
because we need to die. He needs to live. And so Samson conquers and shows the pagan world there's a God in Israel. The more we die to ourselves, the more the world around us says, there's a God in their lives. Jesus must be the real deal. He must be it. So what are we going to do? We're going to dare wake up and rise up, look up, and live this life we're called to live. It's not a bad way to live. You just said we were led by the lambs to the slaughter all day long. It sounds pretty bad. It, it sounds bad because we don't understand the real life we have in Jesus. It's not the life this world has to offer. What would a prophet of man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What would man give in exchange for his soul? And so we have life. And we also have the words of Jesus, the creator of life and the giver of life, who said this, so do not forget these words. Because this is what's called the whole counsel of God. Jesus himself said, I have come that you might have life. And that abundantly, overflowing to the fullest measure. So in any area we die in, here's something I figured out about God. Now, I haven't mastered it living out in my life, but I know this up here, and I've got to keep working it down here. God will never, never be your debtor. He'll never be your debtor. Well, I gave a bunch of money to God. He'll never be your debtor. He'll pay you back. And with wonderful interest. Yeah, oh boy, I, I've given up. Remember, remember Peter? Peter said to Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you, Jesus. We're, we're really pretty incredible. Jesus looked at him and said, I don't know if that's actually in the text, but he said, he said, you, no one has left houses, lands, mothers, brothers, sisters, anything, but what they'll receive back in this life a hundredfold, and in the next life, eternal life. He will never be our debtor. So let's wake up. Let's rise up. Let's go up. Let's be everything God has called us to be.